Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We move to the next chapter. Leaving chapter 8 was very significant where Jesus finally gets the time to have quality time with His disciples and to begin teaching them about the cross. He's going to go to the cross and He must do that to pay for sins and that each one of them must go through the cross in order to be saved and to follow Him. So the call to discipleship is then followed in chapter 9 with a wonderful experience. And I think it follows Jesus' talk about the cross. And it's very fitting. Because what happens in chapter 9 is Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and He experiences what's called the transfiguration. Is that God the Father gives Him back the glory that He had in eternity past, He gives it to Him for a few minutes as a glimpse of the future of what is coming. And I believe He allowed Peter, James, and John to see it to give them a glimpse of what's coming in the future. And then it's to all of us to give us a glimpse of what's coming in the future in the context of the cross. The cross was not going to be enjoyable in any way. It was nothing going to but be a day of darkness. In fact, that's why when Jesus, in His final hours on the cross, God brought a heavy cloud and, and He darkened the sun and, and just let it go dark because it was just a dark time. Pain, suffering, and death. And the disciples were scared and, and weak and confused, it wasn't very enjoyable to go through the cross. But it was necessary. And it's not going to be enjoyable to go through the darkness of this world. And it's not going to be enjoyable for those who are here in the final generation. It'll be a day of darkness. The Old Testament prophet said, it's a, the day of the Lord's a day of darkness, of gloominess, of clouds. It's just terrible. There's not going to be much enjoyable about it, just like the cross. As Jesus prepared to go to the cross, He was given a glimpse of the future, and He set His eyes on that, of what His hope was in, of where He would wind up. And He gives this glimpse of the future to His disciples because with the tribulation they would go through in the, in the darkness of the world, this would be an encouragement to them of what lay ahead in their future. It's a future where they experience for a few minutes the glory of God. And it tells us where we're headed. That we are headed to a wonderful future. And this wonderful future awaits us. And so let's notice this glimpse of the future that was for Jesus of what lay in His future for the disciples and what lay ahead in their future and for us and what lies ahead in our future. And it's meant to encourage us just as it did Jesus and these disciples. So verse 1, Jesus lets the disciples in on what's about to happen. 
And he says, it says, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So Jesus just makes this announcement, pretty dramatic announcement. And we know from the context, looking back, this was the 12 disciples there, plus there were other disciples. It said the multitude of his disciples were there, plus the 12. And he says, some are here in this group who will not die before they see the kingdom of God present with power. And like us, they were saying, what does that mean? What does that mean is going to happen? And we wonder, and even now we ask, say, well, okay, so when was this fulfilled? And there's a couple of different possibilities, but I think the most likely answer is found in the direct context. And this is the most powerful thing to look at in the Bible when you have an interpretation question is to look at the immediate context and look and most of the time the answer for how to interpret some statement is found in the surrounding verses most of the time and so I believe that the answer to this is found in the transfiguration that Jesus was saying that some of the some of the 12 will not die before they see a glimpse of my kingdom with power, and that's what they saw when Jesus was transfigured before them. And so Peter, James, and John were the ones he was talking about here. For Jesus was bestowed with His glory again, His power, and they saw that. Now, another verse to uh, support this, I'll just... Uh, Mention this real quickly as Peter, one of the ones there, mentions this in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he writes in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So Peter writes there about this experience when they went up on the mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them. And Peter said, we saw His glory and we saw the power of, of Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. And... That's Peter saying this is what Jesus was referring to. Uh, other uh, options could be, uh, well, and I kind of add this in as an extension of the answer, is that it was also uh, fulfilled in John the Apostle receiving the revelation, where he was taken to heaven in the Spirit, and he saw the future. He saw the future glory of Jesus and His coming and His kingdom and His power. He saw all that and he wrote it down. And I think John is also uh, a fulfillment of this. But particularly, first and foremost, it was fulfilled with what would happen in just a few days later. Verse 2 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And so, Jesus was given His glory that He set aside. And this is what Jesus set aside in His humanity. He was fully God, never stopped being God. He just took on human flesh. And to do that, then He had to cover over His glory. 
and set aside the access to his full power as God, and he had to operate as a human being here on the earth, and he chose to operate that way, where he had to pray to the Father for what he needed. He, could, he didn't just say, okay, I'm going to do this. He chose to submit as the Son to the Father in His humanity, and then He also submitted to the Holy Spirit work to carry out God's power in His life. It was through the Holy Spirit that the miracles were done. That's just how Jesus operated in His human flesh. He operated like we do. But here in this moment, He was restored with His full glory, and the disciples were allowed to see it. And notice what that involved. It involved a bright white light. When the Bible refers to the glory of God, it's talking about a bright display of light. A lot of times we say that word and, and we don't even think about what we're saying. And it just becomes a phrase, the glory of God. Oh, glory to God. It's specifically talking about a bright display of light. That's what is referred to as God's glory. And the Bible tells us that if we were to see God, there would, from God emanates a bright, bright light, brighter than any that there is, brighter than the sun, way brighter than the sun. And it is so bright that it would annihilate any physical creation that gets near it. That's why in the Old Testament, you'll see God tell Moses that, Here's what Moses did. Moses, remember in Exodus chapter 30, 31, he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, well, no man can see my face and live. If I showed you my full glory, you wouldn't survive it. So I'm not going to show you my full glory, but I'll do this. I'll put you in a, in a cave and I'll cover you in my hand and I will then pass before you. And as I am leaving, you'll see the outer edges of me but you won't see my face because you, you, could, you wouldn't survive it. Because his light is so bright, we would be exterminated. Much like if you, got, you, know, you get close enough to the sun, you're going to burn up. And that's just a tiny fraction of what God is. God's light is so bright. That's his glory. And Moses, when he saw just the outer edges of God, his face, after he came down, his face glowed just from seeing the outer edges of God. And he had to put a veil over his face because it made the people afraid. God's glory is the light that he gives off. Where does that light come from? I believe it comes from his holiness. God's purity is expressed and produces a bright, pure light. In the Bible, we see light is, is paralleled with righteousness. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Light represents purity and it's God's purity that produces that light, I believe. It is a pure, bright, white light. That is what comes out from God. And that is what we're going to see when we get in God's presence. And in Revelation, that's where you see they said there's no need of the sun or the moon because God and the Lamb are its light. God gives off light. Jesus gives off light. And they're going to be the light of the world at that time. And so in this moment, Jesus was given back that glory that He set aside when He took on human flesh. And that's why it says, He was transfigured before them and His clothes began to shine exceedingly white like snow. Now, what Mark leaves out here 
the other gospel writers tell us is that when he says he was transfigured before them, the first thing that happened was his face. Um, Luke records this in Matthew, that his face began to shine brighter or like the sun, I believe it says. His face began to shine with a bright light. His face. And then his clothes began to give off bright white light. And the disciples were, were, were seeing this and they saw Jesus' glory. But Jesus was given some moments to experience that glory again. And I believe God did this for him first to give him strength as he went to the cross. And Hebrews says that. Hebrews says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He didn't look forward to it at all. It, it grieved him to have to go to the cross. But it says that he went to the cross, setting his sights on the glory that he would have on the other side. He set his eyes on the kingdom that would come, that he would come, have, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That's what he was setting his sights on and his focus on. And this glory here was a glimpse of that. And, and what was that manifestation of glory? It was a manifestation of the power of God's kingdom. That's the word back in verse 1 that Jesus said, you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God present with power. And so this was a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And that's the overall description of God's work. He's going to bring His kingdom on the earth. He is the king over all the universe, but His creation is in rebellion against Him and warring against Him. And one of His, I believe His top angel, Satan, is warring against Him. So one of his angels and a third of the angels followed him. His angels are, some of his angels are warned against him. And then all of human creation turned against him and is rebelling against him. And God, but Jesus now has come and saved people to bring them into his kingdom. But there's this huge war going on. But there's coming a day where the kingdom of God is going to come upon the earth in power. And that's how everything's going to end. Satan is going to raise up his man, the Antichrist, and he's going to try to take and, and, and rule like Jesus deserves to, and he'll try to rule, and the world will follow him for a time, and he will even tell the world, I'm the Christ, I am God, worship me. Because that's what Satan's after, is just to be like God. It'll be a very religious thing, a very spiritual thing that'll go on at the end. But it'll be false religion. And the Christ will say, worship me. He'll want what Christ has. But only Christ will be given it. And Christ then will return at the end and He will receive the kingdom. This transfiguration was a, a few minutes of a glimpse of that for Jesus. He was restored with the glory that He had with the Father. In fact, John 17, is, Jesus speaks of this and he, when He's praying there right before the cross. A little while after this, He said, Father... Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And he was referring to this. And so, it was a glimpse of the future. Now think about this. When 
the uh, kingdom comes in the future, this is going to be a part of its manifestation, is that there is going to be a great display of the glory of God's light on the earth. And when Jesus returns, He's going to return in the glory of God, giving off a bright light. And I think this presents some answers for us, and even Jesus uh, gives us some additional information about this. It's very interesting. Look at Matthew chapter 24 with me and notice how Jesus speaks about these details. In Matthew 24 and verse 29, Jesus describes the same thing at His coming. Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And there's the same thing, same wording. Jesus said, when I come, I'm going to come manifesting great power and glory. What glory? It's light. He's going to manifest His light when He comes back. His face is going to be shining like the sun. His clothes are going to be a glowing bright, bright white light. That's what Jesus is going to look like. In fact, when you, if you read on Revelation and John's vision that he received, Jesus is presented that way. His face is shining brightly and His clothes are bright. When He comes back, He's going to come back in a display of light. Now notice the dramatic Way this is going to happen. I've really not fully noticed this before, put, connected these dots. But Jesus says right before this, the world's going to go dark. Look at it. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. God's going to stop the sun from shining. The world's going to go dark. Much like if you've been in an eclipse and things get dark. It could be even more dramatic than that where things really get dark. And in fact, when you look over at Revelation, in the last few plagues with the bowl judgments that are poured out, on the fifth bowl it says darkness was poured out on the throne of the Antichrist. And his kingdom became full of darkness. Right before that it says the sun heats up and gets super hot. Then it goes, it says darkness comes. And it could very well be that the sun has problems, it gets real bright, and then maybe it cools down or it goes out. God could put it out. Who knows? But we do know this. The Bible says it's going to be darkness right before the coming of Jesus. The sun's not going to be shining when Jesus returns. And what will Jesus be coming with? A bright, gloryful display of light. So picture this. I think this is an answer for the statement Jesus makes, and Revelation makes the same statement, and it's always been a curious statement to think, how is that going to happen? Where Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, every eye will see Him. And I thought, well, if He comes down over the Middle East at Jerusalem, which it says He's going to be, well, you can't see that. How, how is somebody over here in America going to see that? And just, you know, one man coming down. I don't, well, I believe it's true, but I don't know how that's going to work. Look at this. If the whole earth goes dark and Jesus comes back with a bright display of light like a star, that is very easy to see. 
It's like if you went out on a dark night and then some shooting star goes across, you see that because of the contrast and because of the light that's displayed there. Jesus is going to come back in a similar way. He's going to come back with His shining like the sun, giving off the glory of God against darkness. And everybody's going to see that light, the light of the world, who's Jesus. And they're going to see Him and He's coming. You say, well, how is everybody going to see it around the world? The globe's round. What if, you know, maybe, this is just my, here's just my speculation I throw out here. Maybe when Jesus comes back to the earth, He first takes a victory lap around it, maybe. And if He goes around all of the earth, everybody will see Him. It's possible. Everything's dark. Sun's gone dark. Everything's dark. It's dark in China. It's dark in the Middle East. It's dark in America. It's dark everywhere. And this bright light is going around the earth. Every eye would see that. And that might be what Jesus does. However He does it, there's going to be that contrast where the sky's going to be dark and Jesus is going to come as a bright light. And that's how everybody is going to see Him when He comes. He's going to come with great glory, shining light. And when he was transfigured, it was a glimpse of that future reality, that future event that would come. And Jesus was given uh, this encouragement that, Jesus, this is where you're going to end up. You're going to go through the darkness of the cross, but you're going to end up with the glory of God returning back uh, with power and great glory reigning over the earth. And so this is a great presentation of the glory of God. Now, there are four significant people in this event. The first one is Jesus, and we've just talked about Him. And this was to give Him a glimpse of His glory and to uh, encourage Him. There were two others that were there next. Verse 4, it says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, the next two people in this event were Moses and Elijah. The fourth was Peter. We'll talk about him probably next, next time. Because Peter is us, and there's a whole host of things here, of lessons for us to look at for, with us and, and Peter and the disciples. But let's talk about Moses and Elijah. God does this, and this is a significant part. 
He sends Moses and Elijah to appear on the mountain with Jesus, and they're talking with Jesus. Other Gospels, one of the other Gospels comment that they're talking to Jesus about His coming death in Jerusalem. Why does God send Moses and Elijah? And you will notice that most of the focus is on Elijah. More information. And I believe this is a glimpse of the future also, both for disciples and for us. That as Jesus was given this, the light of His glory back for a few minutes, it was a glimpse of His future. The appearance of Moses and Elijah is a glimpse of the future for the earth of what's going to come in the future. That before the coming, the second coming of Jesus, there is going to be a manifestation of the prophet Moses and the prophet Elijah on the earth. And that this is a future aspect. And let me just uh, bring out the support of that is that, of course, Moses and Elijah were already in heaven. Of course, Moses had died and was buried, but he was alive with God. Elijah had been taken up to heaven in his body without going through death, apparently. And there was much speculation about that. Did he experience death? Did God do it quickly? Did he not experience death? Is he keeping him there to send him back later? And that was the traditional belief of many of the Jews. And that's what their question is to Jesus about. They say there at the end, verse 11, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And that's what they did. They taught God took Elijah to heaven. Uh, without dying, and he's keeping him there, and he's going to send him back at some point before the kingdom comes. And in fact, we have a verse, the very last verse, in fact, verses of the Old Testament end with this in the book of Malachi. Let me read that real quick. And it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in horror for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So there's a promise. So I'm going to send Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we get into a real deep theological interpretation with these matters because the day of the Lord does refer to the end of all things, this final judgment, but the day of the Lord in the book of Joel also encompasses all the way back to His first coming, to the crucifixion and resurrection. Really, all of it's the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus. But there's a culmination of the day of the Lord, the final days of a time of judgment. And so, what does that mean for when's Elijah's coming? And how is that going to be fulfilled? Jesus gives a part of the answer here. And I believe He gives us the whole answer to direct us. And that is that He says, Elijah came before my first coming, and that was fulfilled in John the Baptist, verse 13. But verse 12, I believe He indicates that there is still a future coming of Elijah that will be in the future with His second coming. I say that because of the, the grammar here. In verse 19, he seems to present two different comings. He says, Elijah is coming 
first and restores all things. Then verse 13, but I say, Elijah has also come already. So he presents a past tense, but then he presents, and literally it's a present tense in the first one. Not future, it's present. And it's translated to communicate this. Many times a present verb has ongoing action that goes into the future. And that's the indication here that where they're questioning, saying to him, Elijah's coming in, why does it say Elijah's coming in the future? Their question is totally future from the disciples. And Jesus' answer confirms that and says, yes, indeed, Elijah is coming first. And he'll restore all things. So Jesus' answer is in a future context. After his first coming, after John the Baptist came, he says there's still Elijah coming, future. And the present tense is ongoing that will be culminated at some point in the, fu- in, the pres- in the future, and that will be at His second coming. And so I believe Jesus' words here in this additional answer reveals that He says, Elijah did come already once, John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, it, it says that. It says that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it wasn't Elijah himself, according to Luke 1. We know that wasn't Elijah. God didn't send Elijah back himself, but John the Baptist came in the spirit and power like Elijah. It was an Elijah-like prophet, and John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that, the New Testament says. And Jesus' words say that here in verse 13. He was the Elijah who has come. But I think Jesus' words then indicate, but there's still a future manifestation also. All of this event is glimpses of the future. And I believe that's true here with Moses and Elijah. There is a future, going to be a future manifestation of Moses and Elijah in the future just before the second coming. And here's the evidence of how that will be fulfilled. Look at Revelation chapter 11. And I believe in this answer that there's much debate about will it actually be Moses and Elijah themselves or someone like them. And I believe this answers... Well, I guess it doesn't clearly address that question, but I think the indication of the answer is that there will be prophets like them. Verse 3, chapter 11, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this matter. Manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Two witnesses, two prophets. You first see them in the book of Zechariah. That was a reference to the olive trees. You can look that up in Zechariah chapter 4, I believe it is. Two prophets. And one of them can call fire down from heaven and stop the rain from falling. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Elijah said there will be no rain in the days of my prophecy. It was three and a half years. Interestingly enough, exactly the time period that the two witnesses prophesied will be three and a half years. Just like Elijah. Called down fire from heaven at the the, uh, showdown with the prophets of Baal. He called down fire from heaven. Fire fell when the prophet of Elijah prayed. 
One of these witnesses, I believe, is indicated to be an Elijah-like prophet, and it's the fulfillment of the future final manifestation of Elijah. The other prophet is said to be able to turn waters into blood. Does that sound familiar? That's what Moses did. And to strike the earth with plagues. What did Moses do? Struck Egypt with ten plagues. God struck through him. Moses was the prophet. And so this other one is presented like Moses. And so I believe this is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah. And this is why they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Of all the people he could have picked, you know, Abraham, David, Samuel, he picked Moses and Elijah. And I think that the answer is because God has chosen that they will be manifested in two final prophets, the two witnesses, and they will do the same type of things that Moses and Elijah did. And they will be, just as in the first coming, Jesus had a prophet who announced him, a forerunner, John the Baptist. In his second coming, he will have two prophets. Oh, I just thought about that. God has designed that. In his first coming, he has one prophet. In his second coming, he has two prophets. That's neat. And they will be like Moses and Elijah. And they will announce, they will do their prophecy right before Jesus' second coming, and they'll lead up to it, and they will prepare the way. And that's what's coming in the future. That tells us what's coming in the future. A Moses and Elijah-like prophet, prophets who will... Proclaim God's word. They prophesy up to the middle of the tribulation. And then God protects them and then they're killed. And then they're dead for three days and then God raises them up and brings them on up to heaven. He catches them away. He raptures them. And I believe in my study, right after that is the seventh trumpet and then that's when the rapture of the New Testament saints are and it's that these two witnesses are parallel with them. They are the forerunner to what God's about to do in catching the saints away to Him. And that's the first aspect of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because Paul tells us Jesus comes in the air and He meets the saints in the air and then they're with Him forever. It does not say there in 1 Thessalonians 4 that He comes onto the earth at that time. It just says he's, there He's in the air. And that's the first stage of His coming. And it is a part of His coming. At the middle of the tribulation, then... The final stage of it at the end of the tribulation coming all the way to, to the earth to defeat the Antichrist and his forces. But Moses and Elijah here, I believe, are a glimpse of the future of what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. These prophets, just like Moses and Elijah, they're going to demonstrate the power and the glory of God. They're given the power of God, it says in Revelation 11. And they can do miracles. They can do whatever they want to do. And they'll stop the rain on the earth as a part of trying to get people's attention to listen to God's Word to bring the kingdom on the earth. All of this is about the kingdom. The most important reality in your life and my life is the kingdom of God. The most important thing about our futures is the kingdom of God coming on the earth. And we've got to go through a time of darkness to get to that day. But in the midst of that darkness, the bright, glorious light of the kingdom of God will shine in it. 
It's shown in it through the person of Jesus at the cross. It will shine in it through the two witnesses in the days of the tribulation. And then it will shine finally in the coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of those days. And the whole world will see His light after the world goes dark. I think this is a tremendous glimpse of our future, of how things will end. And I just want to uh, conclude in this way and wrap this up this way. This tells us that God is in control every step of the way. This can encourage, this encourages us. The second coming of Jesus is to encourage us that, that, that with all the evil that will happen on the earth, all of the darkness that will come, all the pain and suffering, and we're seeing things like that on the earth today. But it's only going to get worse. And in the final seven years, it's going to be the worst it's ever been. And if we're that generation that goes through that, or if another generation goes through that, we can have the encouragement that God is in control every single step of that way. With all of that way of darkness, trudging through that darkness, Jesus, is the light of His kingdom is going to be there. And Jesus is going to manifest His light and His power. You know, it's just like, I just think about the mind frame of Jesus when He was there sitting before the high priests and they were condemning Him to death. They were getting ready to crucify Him. He was about ready to go through all kinds of pain and agony and torture for hours and die. And He looked at them and, said, and they said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And He said, it is as you say. And hereafter, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. See, that's, that's the, the, the mindset we need to have. In the midst of all of the darkness of this world, we need to keep our eyes on the glory of the light of Jesus and His kingdom that's coming. And it's going to be manifested even within those days, every step of the way. When the whole world is lining up behind the Antichrist, when they marvel, they're marvel, they're so impressed with him, they're marveling him, they're saying, Boy, who is like the Antichrist? Who can make war with him? Who can do anything against him? We all need to follow him. And he just does more and more trying to get the world to worship him, and everybody just follows. He begins to set up a system to say, You gotta take a mark. If you don't take my mark, you won't be able to buy anything. Because he'll have a digital currency set up. And they can just shut you off if they choose to. If you don't have the mark, then your, 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 uh, your phone won't work to buy anything. And he'll say, you must take my mark or die. Those are dark days. And in the midst of that, when all that's getting set up, the two witnesses will be preaching the kingdom of God. And they'll be shining God's light. And they'll be able to do miracles and all kinds of things. This Elijah-like person will be able to call fire down. He'll be able to stop the rain. And the Antichrist won't be able to do a thing about him until God allows him to. And God's light will be there every step of the way. And you can know that. With whatever happens, comes in your life, no matter how dark things get, you can know God's light, the light of His kingdom, always, always with you. That was the point of this transfiguration. God gave him a glimpse of it for a few minutes to tell him, you still got the glory. 
You have the kingdom. And to show the disciples, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here and it's coming to be finalized in the future in great power and glory on the earth. And we've got to keep our eyes on that, on the future. Because that is what is real. And that is what will triumph over everything in the end. So Jesus is coming. Moses and Elijah are coming too before him. And it's all going to be a part of his plan. These all got planned out. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement of these truths of your kingdom. You have the power, Lord Jesus. You have all the glory and the power and the kingdom. And we don't have to be afraid of anything that Satan's going to do. Thank you for the encouragement this is and the confidence that we have from this. That we know you're going to rule and reign and you're going to come. When everything gets totally dark, you're going to burst through the clouds in great bright light and glory, the glory of God. We praise you for your kingdom. We praise you for your power. And we thank you that you're allowing us to serve you the truth of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.